Well, it's easy to sing in a congregation like this that the Lord is greater than the waves that are coming over us. It's easy to rejoice here, but when you're in the midst of those waves and choking on the seawater, uh, it's sometimes a, a little bit more difficult. It takes faith, and David had that faith. Even in the midst of the, the ultimate disasters, he would write these kinds of psalms that expressed his total trust in the power of God. And I'm going to read 1 Samuel 23, beginning at verse 19. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in strongholds in the woods, in the hill of Hakilah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. And Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Please go and find out for sure and see the place where his hideout is and who has seen him there, for I am told he is very crafty. See, therefore, and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And it shall be, if he is in the land, that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah." So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the plain on the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David. Therefore he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. But a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. So they called that place the Rock of Escape. Then David went up from there and dwelt in strongholds at En Gedi. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and it is our joy to have it in our hands, to be able to study it on a regular basis. And I pray as we continue to worship you with the responses uh, to this uh, scripture that you would be with us, you would anoint us, and enable us to grow in uh, your grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Ikuko Toguri. Wow. So only the third time I've pronounced that word right. <laughs> Uh, was born in Los Angeles on July 4, 1916, obviously was the daughter of Japanese uh, parents, and uh, gave herself uh, the name Iva, because it was a lot easier to pronounce. Uh, and she was a Girl Scout, member of the Methodist Church. Uh, she had graduated from University of California with a degree in zoology. Uh, she was a voting citizen and loved her country, America. Now, at the age of 25, she took a, a boat over to Japan because she wanted to visit a dying relative there. Uh, two months later, uh, she tried to get back to the States, uh, but unfortunately, in between that time and uh, her leaving, uh, Japan had bombed Pearl Harbor. And so she couldn't return. The uh, United States government declared her to be uh, a, an enemy alien. Well, the Japanese government pressured her into renouncing her U.S. citizenship, and she steadfastly refused to do that. So Japan declared her to be an enemy of Japan, refused to issue her a ration card. So she was really in a pickle. 
Both the states and Japan declared her to be an enemy. So just like David, she was a, a person without a country. Um, the um, situation there was pretty difficult without the ration cards or anything, but she managed to land a job with uh, Radio Tokyo and worked as a typist in the news department for $7 a month. It was not a lot of money, but later on, POWs testified that she uh, sacrificed the little bit of money that she had and risked her life by smuggling food into the concentration camps there to feed American uh, and as well as Australian POWs, uh, people like Major Cousins and Captain Insey. And uh, eventually she was able to produce her, she was pretty skilled, able to produce her own 20-minute show. Well, in the meantime, the POWs there uh, were pressured by the Japanese to produce propaganda on behalf of the Japanese government. And so they asked, uh, because they had developed a relationship with her, they asked her if she would be willing to help them out on this. Uh, she said, no, I don't want in any way uh, be spreading propaganda against the United States government. And they assured her, look, we're writing the script. We're going to make it look a little bit like propaganda, but we're not going to say anything negative about the states. And so she agreed, and um, uh, true to their word, there wasn't even a word of anti-American propaganda uh, in uh, her shows. She had 340 shows total that she aired, and it was supposed to be propaganda, but the way she kind of developed it, it actually brought encouragement to the morale of the troops uh, in the, uh, the ocean there. Uh, she called herself Orphan Annie and called the POWs her, quote, my fellow orphans. And uh, so that's a little bit of background on the loyal character of Iva. She was very much like David, misunderstood, but seeking to serve the United States to the best of her ability. But here's where the real pain came. Uh, right after the war, uh, she was arrested on uh, September 5, 1945, spent a year in jail, and um, was being tried for treason uh, by the U.S. government. Now, it was hard enough to be treated as an enemy by Japan, but to be accused with treason of all things when she had sacrificed so much during the whole war uh, to help the, the POWs uh, was a bit much for her, but she defended herself, and the American and the Australian prisoners of war thankfully came to her defense and testified of all of the things that she had done. And after uh, being in jail while she was being investigated for a whole year, she finally was released because the FBI and MacArthur's um, um, a staff couldn't find any evidence of wrongdoing. I read through the transcripts of the court, court hearings there, and the FBI had looked at five years, very in, intensive investigation, five years uh, worth of evidence. Department of Justice issued a statement calling her broadcast, quote, innocuous. The U.S. Navy actually issued her a certificate of appreciation for the way in which she had encouraged uh, the morale of the troops. So you think, okay, that's great, you're in, in jail, but at least she's moving forward. Well, actually, this was not the end of her troubles. Despite the trial and acquittal and the testimony of the POWs on her behalf, and the Certificate of Appreciation from the U.S. Navy, and the FBI's 
clearing of her name and the positive statement of the U.S. Department of Justice, there was so much anti-Japanese hatred that was going on uh, at that time, and there was especially one radio talk show when they found out she was coming back to the States. They did everything that they could uh, to undo her, and so there was a whole lot of sentiment about her coming back. So when she came into the States, she was uh, arrested once again and tried by federal prosecutors for treason and, quote, adhering to, giving aid and comfort to the imperial government of Japan during World War II. Now, she's already gone through a great deal of trauma, uh, you know, for, she feels like she's been betrayed by, by her country. Her trial is described as the costliest and lengthiest trial in all of American history up to that point. They spent over half a million dollars trying to uh, prosecute her. They scoured everything in Japan and and the states that they could uh, to bring this against her, and they were coming up short on evidence. They began with eight charges, and they finally settled on one charge that she had announced on the radio uh, the loss of eight American ships uh, that had gone down at sea. Now, despite having boxes of tapes, they wouldn't let the jury listen to uh, the tapes, and there were a lot of irregularities, including not allowing her Portuguese husband to testify on her behalf, uh, and uh, not prosecuting people who were definitely proved to have perjured themselves under oath. A lot of irregularities that went on. In fact, they would not allow her husband to come over to the States at all. Um, she was separated for years, actually uh, far longer than David was separated from his wife. She never saw her husband again for the rest of her life. It was just, uh, I looked at the transcripts, and I just, it's just obvious on the surface of it that this was a kangaroo court. Uh, I just was sickened by it. Anyway, she was found guilty, was fined $10,000, sentenced to 10 years in prison. And by the way, she's only one of seven Americans that's ever been found guilty of treason. Uh, it was later discovered that two of the witnesses, key witnesses who had testified on her behalf, had lied under oath. And so even the, the ridiculous charge of, uh, of treason that she was found guilty on was proved to be uh, wrong. She was paroled after six years and two months. Now, you would think she'd want to leave the country that had mistreated her so much, but she didn't. She re resisted deportation, and she remained and she served in this country with grace for uh, quite a number uh, of years. Her defense lawyers became lifetime friends and the evidence of her innocence was so overwhelming that President Ford finally gave an unconditional full pardon in 1974. Now the reason I give that story is because her betrayal is so much like David's. Just like Iva, David had sacrificially served his country and his fellow citizens. Just like Iva, David was in exile. Just like Iva, David was rejected by the government of both countries. David spent approximately the same amount of time in exile, and yet David shows a similar grace in the face of difficulties. Now, if you can just put yourself into the shoes of either Iva or David, either one, I want you to ask yourself, how would I have responded to this betrayal of everything good that I have done? Would you have become bitter or would you have been able to trust God's overruling providence that he's even working these things together for your good? You know, David said, do not put your trust in princes. You can see why. <laughs> do not put your trust. They'll let you down. 
But he continually admonishes us, trust the Lord, even when you cannot see the good in your situation. It all seems bad, just like uh, Brother Scott was saying at the beginning. By faith, we trust the word of a God who cannot lie, and that can help to take us through. Now, I want to look, first of all, at the betrayal of friends, and I, put, I should have put friends in quotation marks because we don't know for sure if they were close friends, but there were people that he knew, these Ziphites, were members of his own tribe, and they were a part of the key, they were the, the defensive center that would have taken care of David's district. So he probably did know uh, some of these people. Anyway, let's read verses 19 through 20. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in strongholds in the woods, in the hill of Hakilah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now therefore, O king, Come down according to all the desire of your heart to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hands. Now, the first thing I, I, I see in this passage is a misplaced patriotism. They are not putting the interests of their country first. They're putting loyalty to the king first. Now, in their minds, it was probably identical. It's exactly the same thing. Uh, but I, I just want to point out that these Ziphites probably did not have any evil intentions. Saul clearly did. I doubt that they did. They were patriots who loved their country. In fact, we've got a whole lot of archaeological evidence that the Ziphites were very well known for their loyalty to the king and to the country. In fact, we've got tons of uh, shards of pottery from that region. Uh, they were a key uh, administrative center, but... Uh, a lot of these uh, pottery shards have to the king uh, put on them. They were not only known for their loyalty, uh, but they were known for a, a long, long history of defending their country against external enemies. I mean, all the way back, they were proud of their great-great-great-grandfather, uh, Caleb. You remember Caleb was in his 80s, a guy who said, give me this mountain. I mean, it's one of the worst places you could attack. He wants to attack this. He faithfully served under Joshua. And this is the kind of heritage that these Ziphites had. From that time on, Ziph became one of 15 strategic centers for defending uh, the region uh, of Judah. And so um, what's going on here is these were patriots who were ready to defend their country at the drop of a hat. Here's the problem. They had a zeal without knowledge. They were likely sincere but misinformed. What they were acting on was the bad press that came out of Saul's uh, you know, press box, I guess you could call it. You can always trust what the government says, right? Uh, for them, uh, David was Saul's enemy. That's all they needed to know. Saul's enemy is our enemy. This is the way that Ziphites think. So they felt the right thing to do was to report David's whereabouts to Saul for the king, for the country. This was their motto. And every age has had its Ziphites who will weirdly think that they are serving God and country when they turn in their neighbors. Now, we, in hindsight, we just shake our heads at the Germans who would spy on and report their neighbors to the Nazis in Nazi Germany. Why in the world would they do that, even turning in their friends? We shake our heads at the Germans uh, who turned in pastors and, and others, and we wonder why would they do that? But I really think that a lot of those people thought that they were doing the right thing. They were patriots who believed and loved, believed in their country, loved their country. They were patriotic Ziphites 
who had a zeal not tempered with knowledge. And in some ways, I think blind, zealous patriotism is one of the worst things that citizens can have. Now, I'm a patriot, but not a blind, zealous patriot that I'm willing to defend anything that our government says. There are blind patriots today. They will defend America no matter what evils America is engaged in. They will follow orders without questioning those orders. Years ago in Louisville, Nebraska, there were some Ziphite officers who were hauling pastors and fathers out of a church and locking the church doors because that church was refusing to get a, uh, a, a, a license from the state for their church school. Now, I'm sure that these officers did not have any personal malice against uh, these pastors. I don't think they hated Christianity. I don't think they hated these people. They probably were thinking that they were serving God and country, but they were duped. They were not thinking on their own. I watched a hidden uh, video of a poli uh, police uh, confiscating uh, cameras and video from some citizens at a public meeting last week. And um, uh, in this video, the people are saying, why are you taking my camera? I mean, what am I doing wrong? And the guy said, well, we're just uh, protecting uh, the, uh, the citizens in this room. And you're scratching your head. And he said, okay, how is taking videos from a people in a public forum, it's a political rally, how in the world is that in any way protecting citizens? Well, they said that uh, uh, they are protecting citizens from being cameraed and and anyway, I did a little bit of research, and what it ended up being is that these Republicans didn't want these videos put onto the web. They said, these are radical Democrats. They're putting all of these videos on the web. And I'm thinking, well, so what? It's not like they edited them, made them look worse than they were. <laughs> They're just putting videos up there. And um, uh, anyway, the, later on, once it became real public, uh, they were apologizing about it. But those police officers were Ziphites. They couldn't think for themselves. I've got a strong suspicion they're going to be sued, and I hope they do, even though it's we conservatives who sick the police officers on them. It's just too much of this stuff going on. But we have Ziphites patting down honest citizens in airports, Ziphites confiscating arms from honest citizens when natural disaster hits, Ziphites blindly implementing unconstitutional orders week in and week out. Ziphites are everywhere, okay? They are, they do not, they're not subject to the Constitution. Their motto is, to the king. And when Ziphite citizens go along with what's happening there, in fact, they contribute to it, there are Davids out there who feel horribly, horribly betrayed. I uh, really think that in part the Tyler situation in Oklahoma is Ziphite citizens betraying neighbors to Saul. And there's huge suffering that can result from such betrayals. Huge suffering that can result. Now, I really admire that family for not getting bitter. Every time we talk with them, I just, I just think, well, praise the Lord. They're handling this in the way that David handled it. And I think it's appropriate to preach on passages like this because you may get burned at some point in the future. Maybe not by government. You might be burned by your own friends, dear friends who betray you. And your responses to that betrayal are going to evidence whether you're walking in the flesh or whether you're walking in the spirit. It's so important that we know how to respond in a godly way. Verse 21, and Saul said, blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. 
Saul praised these Ziphites as engaging in a wonderful, compassionate act, as if they're serving God and country. He's putting a good spin to a horrible act of betrayal. Okay? He was excited to find people who had unthinking loyalty. But his praise of wrong actions would have been considered a curse by God and should have been considered a curse by the Ziphites. And so Paul, Saul blesses them. And then secondly, Saul says, you have compassion on me. Now, having compassion on a runaway government is to fail to have compassion on David and, or to have compassion on other Israelite citizens. And so we've got to be thinking, just because people praise us is not enough. We also need to be thinking, okay, does God praise this behavior or is God going to curse this behavior? Because there's a lot of situations in which what we are engaging in, the government loves, or maybe some other person or our friend loves, and yet God's curse may be upon uh, our actions. Uh, there does come a time, even though we have a duty to serve government according to the Scripture, there does come a time when serving and having compassion on the government means to destroy and fail to have compassion on the innocents. So we've got people, politicians and others, who sing, you know, God bless America, and they're not lifting a hand to help the unborn. That call to blessing hides the reality of God's curse. Now, nobody wants to have the state mad at you. I don't. Um, and yet, if the tyrannical state is praising you, there is some probability that God is not pleased with what's going on. And of course, these citizens were in trouble with God because they were unwitting accomplices to the king's tyranny. Let's take a look at verses 22 through 23. Please go and find out for sure and see the place where his hideout is and who has seen him there, for I am told that he is very crafty. See, therefore, and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty, and I will go with you. And it shall be, if he is in the land, that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. Now, it's very interesting what Saul has done here. These guys have come thinking, okay, we're just going to give some information. It'll help Saul to do his job. No, no, no. Saul grabs them as soon as they come in, and it's almost like he's got his tentacles around them. He's going to get a whole lot more out of them than just this little bit of information. There's three things he wants them to do. First, he wants them to be involved in ongoing surveillance of David. Second, he wanted them to make note of every single person who has gone to visit David. Because this is not just going to be about David. Uh, he's going to round up all of the citizens who have in any way helped David as being enemies of the state. And then third, he asks them to provide uh, the layout of the land. He calls it knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides. But... It looks as if they're not even going to be off the hook once they've supplied these three things because he goes on to say, I will go with you. So they're going to be a part of this manhunt. They think they're just giving some helpful information to Saul. No, he pulls them in and he's going to involve them in a whole lot more than what they had anticipated they were going to be doing. But you know what? Even then, they probably thought this is a good thing. It's helping our country. It's helping Saul to track down the terrorist David. And uh, because of their ignorance, they were unwitting accomplices to tyranny. So in these verses, David is hurt by three things. He's hurt by neighbors who turned him in. He's hurt by a government that practices and rewards betrayal. And thirdly, he's hurt by citizens actively being involved in the manhunt for him. And then in verses 24 through 25, we've got the actual harassment. 
So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the plain on the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David. Therefore he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. David and his men are just like Iva. The government was spending enormous sums of money just to bring David down, just like the government spent enormous sums of money just to bring Iva down. Both governments were doing exactly the opposite of what Romans 13 says is the sacred duty of every civil magistrate. Let me outline for you five things that God says are sacred duties of civil magistrates in Romans chapter 13. First, Romans 13 verse 1 says that government agents are supposed to limit their power. That's verse 1. They're supposed to believe that there is, this is the literal rendering of the Greek there, that there is no authority if not from God. Okay, so the civil magistrate is supposed to believe, I may not do anything that God has not explicitly authorized me to do in the Scriptures. I am limiting my power. I watched a... Uh, a video of um, Ron Paul last week where he was being, it was a great interview actually on the, on the TV, and you could just see this, this uh, talk show host was just wondering, what are you talking about? You're not interested in presidential power. You mean you, you don't care if you win? And Ron Paul, you can tell, you don't get it. Of course I want to win, but I'm not interested in presidential power. I want to get into this office because I want to limit that presidential power. And that's exactly what Romans 13 verse 1 is talking about. It's saying magistrates need to seek to limit themselves to exactly what God has called them to have. The second sacred trust is to only resist those who are lawless. Now Saul is doing the exact opposite. He is resisting law-abiding citizens. You all know the difference between unlawful and illegal, right? Unlawful is uh, not subject to the laws of God. Illegal means a sick bird. <laughs> no, no. Illegal means you, you are violating some statute of the government. And yet there are some statutes that are unlawful. Why? Because these statutes are contrary to the laws of God. I think we've got to distinguish in our mind the difference between unlawful and illegal. The third call of Romans 13 to a magistrate is to praise good works and to be a terror to bad works. That's in verse 3. The Psalms indicate David felt hugely betrayed by Saul because he had become a terror to his good works. Really, on all five levels we're going to be looking at, Romans 13 is flipped completely upside down. Fourth call in Romans 13 is to minister protection to the Davids of this world. That's verse 4. Now, David was experiencing the exact opposite, just like that defenseless Japanese-American was experiencing the exact opposite. They were being harassed by the government. They were not being protected. The fifth sacred duty of magistrates in Romans 13 is to raise the sword against tyrants and evildoers. Now, Saul was doing that, but he was also raising the sword against those who do good. Now, that indicates that in Saul's regime, there was a systemic evil. On all five levels, Saul was doing the exact opposite of his sacred duties. And when you experience systemic perversion of justice in the name of justice, because they're going to call it justice, it can be extremely frustrating. 
And this sense of frustration that some American citizens have been happening, and this applies in other countries as well, is a frustration that David keenly understood. And in the conclusion, I want to draw out some applications of how we can face such injustice without getting bitter, to face it with faith. But let me point out, right in this passage, there are rays of hope before we even go to the Psalms. The first ray of hope is in that last verse that I read where there's a hint that even though there were all of these people who had betrayed him, there were people who were faithful to him. It says they told Saul. Now, who is the they? The only antecedent to the they is either uh, the men of Saul or the Ziphites. So whoever the they are, he's got some counterintelligence that's helping him. He's got eyes and ears. You know, this is what happened in Nazi Germany. There were people who stayed within the government, uh, Nazi government, and they kept giving information to the underground. And it may be that Jonathan was doing this, and he had some people who were faithful to him being eyes and ears. We're not told, but it's either the Ziphites or it was the... Or it was the um, the government of Saul had some people in them that were helping him. Iva had that with her legal team that believed in her, actually became lifelong friends with her. God knows how to strategically place Shadrachs, Meshachs, Abednegoes in just the right place, just the right time to be able to help his people. The second ray of hope is actually Roman numeral two, and that was that God providentially used his enemies the Philistines, to save David. This is so ironic. And this shows to me the overarching providence of God that can use the very things that we think are our downfall, can use it for our victory and for the victory of his kingdom. Psalm 76 words it this way, that God uses even his enemies to praise him, the wrath of man to praise him. And uh, he can turn our apparent defeats into the advancement of his kingdom. Okay, take a look at verse 26. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. Things were looking desperate, and God does not always rescue us when we would prefer for him to rescue us. Um, the way that Psalm 45 words it is that God helps his church just at the break of dawn. Just before the dawn, that's the darkest time. And so he's basically saying just in the nick of time. And we would prefer that God would help us out long, long before the break of time, uh, dawn. But you see, God's purpose is not just for our comfort. God's providence is for your good, for your development, and that's what's going on here. David was being sanctified. He was growing in his character. He was learning to depend upon the Lord more, and some of the most beautiful psalms of David come from his experiences on this mountain. So God was working, uh, working through him, and then saved David just in the nick of time. Okay, verse 27. But a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have invaded the land. Now I'm sure this frustrated the daylights out of Saul because he's almost got David in his clutches. And then this report comes and he's got to think, you know, do I risk losing the whole kingdom to the Philistines or do I get David? Well, he didn't have a choice. He has to leave. And I'm sure he was extremely frustrated in doing so. It drove him crazy. But you know, God can frustrate the humanists of today just as easily. 
You know, they may wish they could have another $25 trillion to spend to overturn God's laws. And yet God can use lack of money. He can use enemies outside the state. He can use enemies inside the country. He can use their friends, even the friends of humanists. He can use to frustrate uh, their purposes and take the pressure off his people just when it is necessary. Look at verse 28. Therefore Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines, so they called that place the Rock of Escape. They made it a memorial to God's goodness. In fact, uh, when you read the Psalms that were written during this period, you can see in those Psalms that David ascribes this Philistine attack to God. God delivered him through these Philistines. This was not an accident. This was God's doing. He used the Philistines to save David. And that idea troubles many people. How can God use the sinful actions of others in order to accomplish righteous purposes? And that's what the Scripture says He does. Now, some people, the way they try to reconcile this is they say, well, God allowed it, but His hands were not involved in this at all. But that's not the way the Scripture words this. It indicates God's hands were very much involved, yet He was not the author of sin. And people say, how in that world could that be? Amos 3, verse 6 says that there's not a single evil or calamity that happens in a city that God has not done it. Okay, that's a very active kind of an involvement uh, in those calamities. And people's instant reaction is, well, Phil, don't go down that road. <laughs> that, that, that's kind of dangerous. How in the world could God in any way be involved in or control or have his providence overruling these sins without being implicated in sin. They, they just are, they struggle with that. And their response is God can't sin, and he never tempts people to sin. He never forces people to sin. I say, amen. I 100% agree with that. James is quite clear on that. But think about it this way. Is there any sin in human history that was greater than the crucifixion? I would say not. That's probably the most heinous sin that was out there. And yet the Scripture indicates that God was completely in control of every detail of that crucifixion. He didn't just allow it. You know, it's okay, he sees this is going to accidentally happen. No, he didn't just allow it. He controlled all the details. In fact, Scripture says that God offered up Christ on that on that uh, cross. In Isaiah 53, it says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He didn't just permit it. He preordained, predestined, you could say, uh, 100 details that had to take place in perfect sequence for Jesus to be crucified on Nisan 14. Now, the Jewish leadership didn't want him to be crucified on Nisan 14. They did everything in their power to keep him from being crucified during that Passover because there were so many crowds that Mark says they were afraid of riots happening. So they're trying to put it off or do it earlier, but he had to be crucified at exactly the right hour. And uh, he had to be beaten. A spear had to be thrown through his side. His garments had to be gambled for. So here's the question. This is a $100 question. How could God control all of those sins without himself being implicated in those sins? Or another way of wording it is how could Psalm 105, 17 say that it's God who sent Joseph down into Egypt in order to save people alive when it was his wicked brothers who had tried to sell him down there? 
How could Joseph say to his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. How can man be responsible and God be sovereign over everything? Or more to the point of this sermon, how can God control the betrayal that you're experiencing from your friends and control the evil actions of those Philistines? And if you don't understand the answer to those questions, you're going to have a very difficult time having peace even when you've been betrayed. You are much more likely to be bitter. If you don't understand how Amos 3.6 can attribute every evil in a city to God's providence, you're going to have a hard time believing that Romans 8.28 can be true, that he works all things together for your good, including the fact that that guy was going to get drunk at just the right time to, you know, uh, total your car with his uh, car accident. If you do not believe Romans eleven thirty six, for of him and through him and to him are all things, you're not going to be able to worship God with the awe and wonder and praise and thankfulness that, uh, that Paul did in that chapter. Why? Because you've divercated in your mind that God's sovereign over these things. He's not sovereign over those other things. And so I want to uh, briefly talk about how it is possible for God to control the Philistine attack against Israel, yet work it together for not only the good of David, but of all of his people, and without being the author of sin. A.W. Pink, illustration I think is as good as any in explaining this, and I know most of you have heard this, but some of you are new, so I want to repeat this, and anyway, the rest of you guys uh, need to get this illustration really good in your mind uh, so that you can share it with others. But A.W. Pink, he's, he used this illustration. He says, what is it that keeps this book from falling to the ground? And the obvious answer is it's the power of my restraining hand. Because of gravity, of its own nature, this book will fall to the ground if I, for even a moment, give it up. I stop restraining it. It will fall to the ground. Now, I don't have to slam this book down into the ground for it to fall to the ground, and yet I have determined it will fall to the ground if I give it up. Now, in the same way, he says that Scripture indicates that we have a sin nature that just like gravity makes us want to go down. And if it was not for God's restraining hand, his restraining power, every one of us would plummet into worse and worse sin continually. We don't deserve God's restraint. Romans 1 says, if we continue to rebel against his restraint, he will give us up unto a depraved mind to do every kind of wickedness, including plummeting down into homosexuality. He says every one of us could have that happen to us if God's restraining grace is removed. This is one of the reasons, by the way, you must never, ever take God's grace for granted. Cling to him. Your whole life cling to the Lord's grace because you could fall just as surely as anybody else could fall. I can fall as well. But anyway, if you see God's restraints as being in many areas of their lives, God can control which direction a sin will go by withdrawing his restraining grace in these areas and continuing, well, not restraining grace, his restraining power, continuing to restrain in other areas. God did not force them to sin. They wanted to sin. They are doing that sin, and yet can you see how God determines exactly what those Philistines would do um, uh, 
and you could call it permission if you want, so long as you acknowledge God's providence is totally, totally in control over all of it. And um, what God is doing is He's using these Philistines to praise His name, to benefit David, and to benefit the Israelites who were backsliding, who were failing to take this tyranny of Saul seriously, so they deserved the discipline that they were getting from the Philistines. But that illustration also says, look, whoever falls is responsible. We're always responsible for our actions. And so David takes his responsibility seriously. In verse 28, we see that David uses all the means at his disposal to try to escape from Saul. He's not passively saying, okay, God's going to protect me. No, he runs. He tries to do what he can. And then verse 29, we see David taking further precautions. It says, Then David went up from there and dwelt in strongholds at En Gedi. Now, En Gedi, if you, I've got a picture of En Gedi in there. It is a perfect hideout for David. Uh, Josephus says that during the war uh, of Rome against Jerusalem, the bandits were hiding in there. It was just notoriously difficult for the Romans to root them out despite their superior forces. So David is being cautious. He didn't deliberately tempt the Lord. Okay, so we've given the exposition of what this text means. What I want to do now is to summarize David's reaction. This passage doesn't give us any clues as to how David reacted. What were his internal reactions? You've got to look at the four Psalms that David wrote during this period. It's Psalms 13, 17, 22, and 54. Now, I hope next week to preach on at least one of those psalms. Uh, I'm not going to preach on all of them, but just one of those psalms to give a smooth transition into the next um, a chapter, Lord willing. But right now, I want to summarize five of David's reactions that are common to all four of those psalms. The first thing that David does when this comes against him is he opens his heart to the Lord and he says, Lord, examine me. See if there's any wicked way in me. And I think it's remarkable. Lord, if so many people think I'm a wicked, terrible person, maybe there's something to it. Is there anything I need to repent of? I'll just read you one verse uh, from Psalm 17. David told God, You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and have found nothing. So he, first of all, opens his heart to the Lord. and He says, Lord, I want you to examine me because if there is anything that I need to repent of, I want to do it right now. But in the process of opening his heart, he doesn't judge himself. He only lets God judge him. This is what keeps him from being overwhelmed by the judgments of other people. He's willing to be exposed, and if God is pleased with him, he's fine. And if your sense of well-being is 100% determined by what other people think of you, you're not going to be able to do this. This first point is so critical that you have more fear of God than you have of man. And that doesn't mean he's not going to find it painful. Now, let me read you from Paul, who did find the barbs of the Corinthians a little bit painful, but he says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. He refused to beat up on himself. He says, The only one I'm going to let judge my heart is God. And so that's a question you can ask yourself is it just a little thing? Yeah, painful, but it's just a little bit painful when other people judge me if God is pleased with my heart. Boy, you're going to be much better in a much better place to handle betrayal if your heart is subject to God's approval or disapproval, not uh, totally of man. So he says basically, 
Search my heart. Show me if there is any wicked way in me, and I would encourage us to do the same thing because we can be blind to our own sins. And somebody's betrayed us, and we think, yeah, it's only their fault. Our first reaction should be, Lord, is there anything in me that is wrong? Second, David laid his case out before the Lord and asked God to give the justice he could not get from human courts. Let me read you another verse from Psalm 17. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on the things that are upright. So he's asking him, hear a just cause. This is taking Satan and other humans to the courtroom of heaven. Okay, you've been burned down here below. Hey, you got a court of appeals. And too many Christians do not take seriously this court of appeals. They just feel, okay, I'm done for. And they don't ask God to bring his judgments to bear. We can take our injustices to the courtroom of heaven. And basically, I think it's very appropriate when you've been slandered to say, Lord, I can't, I can't deal with this slander, but you can. And I pray that you would open up your books in heaven. I'm bringing evidence before you of the slander, the accusations, the betrayals that have come against you. And I pray that you would extract restitution because no human court's going to do it down here below. I know I can't, and I don't even want to deal with this because I'm just going to get bitter if I do. I hand this over to your courtroom, and I'm going to submit myself to your justice. I think that's very appropriate. Now, I don't remember if it's two years ago, three years ago, but sometime I gave two sermons on one of the Psalms of David that uh, dealt with this whole bringing of people to the courtroom of heaven. And it goes through all of the jurisprudence issues to get your case even accepted into the courtroom of heaven. Two witnesses, and there's evidence that you've got to gather. So even getting it accepted and then getting it heard. But if you follow those rules of courtroom jurisprudence, you will get justice from God because as uh, Jesus said, uh, God is not like that unjust judge that that widow had to pester and pester. No, he answers quickly. He's the exact opposite of that judge. He answers quickly. He delights in giving justice. Shall not God avenge those who cry out to him day and night? I tell you, he will avenge them and speedily. So that's the second thing. Do not be passive. Take your betrayers to the court of heaven. Third thing that David did was to keep his lips from lashing out and complaining against the Ziphites and grumbling against God's providence. He said in Psalm 17, I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. This is such a critical thing because we could do the first two right and we continue to grab onto this offense. We've left it in the courtroom of heaven. We're not going to do this. But a lot of times we take that right out of the courtroom of heaven again. No, I want to hold on to this a little bit longer, Lord. And we start complaining and grumbling and getting bitter. And it only poisons ourselves and it poisons the people who are around us. And David says, no, I am not going to transgress with my mouth. A lot of times people say, well, if I don't defend myself, who will? I just can assure you, there are not enough words in the world for you to be able to satisfactorily defend yourself against the slander that has happened to you. You just can't do it. it because slander is really like tearing a pillow apart that's got feathers, letting it go to the winds, and then you're trying to defend yourself by picking up all of these different, all of these different feathers. Just let it go. Let it go, because otherwise you're going to get yourself bitter. 
Don't grumble against God. Don't lash out against others. He says, that's transgressing with my mouth. The fourth thing David did is he praised God. He worshiped God. He thanked God, even in the midst of pain and difficulty. Like in Psalm 17, there's a whole bunch that's in there. But he praises God for his justice. Even though God is sovereign over all of these things, he says, Lord, you are just. I'm not going to call you unfair at all. And he praises him for what he calls your marvelous loving kindness. By focusing on God, praising God, he is cleansing his heart from any downward slide into bitterness, which is where we always tend to go when we start grumbling and complaining and griping about these things. So if you can put praise upon your lips, focus on the Lord and say, oh, Lord, here I go grumbling again. No, I will praise you. Uh, Take Psalm 103, memorize the first few verses and say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. I'm not going to go down this road of grumbling. You're going to find healing happening within your heart. And then finally, in Psalm 17, and I could have gotten this from other Psalms as well, he called out to God to save him from those who surrounded him. There are heavenly hosts who can be on your behalf, who can turn a heart of a person in ways that you cannot turn their hearts. And so you sure cannot, don't have enough resources here on earth. David used his resources to the best of his ability, but he said, Lord, I'm going to need reinforcements. I'm going to need your angels to come here on my behalf. And if you will do those five things, the last one's engaging in spiritual warfare, you're going to be in a far better place to handle those betrayals. May God help our congregation to triumph over the Ziphites Triumph over the souls and triumph over our own evil hearts. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. And I know almost every person here has had times where they have endured pain, a pain from betrayal from those that they love, pain from a betrayal of those uh, perhaps that they don't even know. But Father, we thank you that we can lift these things up to you and that uh, even in the midst of these pains, realize victory and realize these things working together for our good we do do desire father to not uh, respond in inappropriate ways and i pray that every person in this congregation would find that peace in the midst of the storm uh, that uh, joy unspeakable and full of glory that peter talked about in the midst of their persecution and that we would be able to keep on keeping on with uh, our heads straight and our feet not stumbling. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.